0: Well, good morning. It's amazing to think that after the extraordinary events of the first Christmas, everything went incredibly quiet in Galilee. In Nazareth, Jesus spent approximately 30 years living a very ordinary life. It appears his stepfather probably died by the time he was about 30 so he probably became the head of the family. We know he had four br- younger brothers and at least two younger sisters, big family. We know they, they had a carpentry and woodworking business and were involved in the building trade. And for, th- for 30 years, things just ticked over in Nazareth. He was a remarkable man, very holy, very humorous, very open, very warm, no doubt. Great family man, but not a lot else could be said about Jesus until one day he said to his family that he needed to go away for a a, a little trip. So he left the business in charge. Uh, The brothers took over the work. They weren't quite sure how long he was going to be away. And unbeknownst to them, as far as we can tell, he headed down a day or two's journey to the River Jordan. And there he came into the presence of a wild and woolly preacher who had been making a reputation for himself by proclaiming a strange message about something about to happen, and this was John the Baptist. And Jesus approached John the Baptist and, to cut a long story short, was baptised by John the Baptist. And in that moment, everything changed. The quiet life came to an end as he came up out of the water. The sign of God's presence came through the voice of the Father heard from heaven and the presence of the Holy Spirit manifested in the physical form of a dove. He then went for six weeks into a remote local location for a bit of reflection and prayer. And then he came back home. Now, think of it from the point of view of the brothers. Now, Mary was pretty sharp. She probably knew what was going on. She'd had some inside knowledge from some angels 30 years earlier. But the brothers wondered, where has he gone? And what is he doing? And he didn't come back to Nazareth. He came back to some villages a few miles away, called Capernaum and elsewhere by the Sea of Galilee. And the first they heard of it was when somebody walked into the village and said, You never got to guess what's happened to your brother. He's just gone religious. I mean, seriously religious. Well, what's he doing? Well, this is his message, they said. The first quoted words of Jesus in his ministry are recorded in Matthew and Mark, and in Mark 1 verse 14 and 15, we have this incredibly short message which is the key for everything we're going to be talking about. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near or arrived. Repent and believe the good news. Full stop. Jesus announced that at that very moment in history, As he came up out of the water, was anointed with power by the Holy Spirit, everything in human history was about to change because something was coming which he called the Kingdom of God. Now, not only did he preach, but he caused an absolute sensation. Within weeks, the whole of Galilee was stirred up by this extraordinary preacher because he didn't just talk. He performed incredible miracles by the hundred, casting out demons, healing the sick, setting people free, and everybody flocked to hear this man. Now, the brothers over in Nazareth just didn't know what to make of this. What's gone wrong with Jesus? And so he came back to Nazareth to go to the synagogue and just to give a little word of explanation. And he he went into the synagogue one Sabbath day. All the brothers were there. Mary would have been there probably. And the sisters and other relatives. And he described in more detail what he'd been living out in the previous days. And he said, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Aha, so this is what the kingdom's about. Preaching, good news, freedom from sin, sicknesses being healed, dark powers being pushed back, economic provision for people in need, all sorts of things coming from this amazing uh, message of Jesus. Now, time moved on in Galilee. People kept getting healed. People kept getting keep, keep. Get, getting recovering from remarkable sicknesses. People came from ever increasing distances. We can calculate that people traveled more than a hundred miles by, on foot, on horseback, just to uh, camel to get to, uh, to, to, to actually meet Jesus. So, fast forward a little bit. Jesus is up and running, his ministry is up and running. The discipleship group is being formed. He's forming some disciples. They're traveling around. He's incredibly popular. Miracles are taking place at all times. But what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom? What's going on? What do we make of it all? So halfway through his ministry, Jesus started to explain things a bit more fully. And in Matthew 13, we have a a series of stories, parables, seven in total, we're going to look at four, four of them briefly, which are about the kingdom of God. And these stories are to try and help people understand what exactly is going on in this particular situation. Now, the first story, which I'm not going to spend much time with, but the first story is about a sower who's going out To sow the seed. I'm sure you know this story very well. We teach it to the children, don't we? This is the story of the kingdom. The seed is the word of God and it's going out into the hearts of human beings. And human beings are like the soil that the seed is going into. And there's four different types of soil and they're just coming up on the screen right now. Some of the seed falls on the path and the birds eat it up. You preach the message and nothing happens. Some of it goes into rocky places. The, the plant germinates really quickly, but, you, but there's not really much soil there, and it's pretty dry, and when the sun comes, it just, it just dies out. Some goes uh, in a place where there's a lot of weeds, so it's not really very productive, and some, some seed goes in a really good ground, and it's very productive, and it produces an amazing harvest, and you see those four images there. Now, that's an illustration of the kingdom of God at work in human life, as you might experience it. So, are all those four things true? Do some people just totally ignore the Christian message? Is that true? Do some people get really excited very briefly? Is that true? Do some people get really committed, but they get incredibly distracted as time goes on and they just can't keep the focus? Is that true? And do some people really commit wholeheartedly and they're very productive? Is that true? All those things are true. That's what the kingdom of God is like among us now and it was then and it still is today, 2,000 years later. However, in these parables, Jesus gives us some more fascinating insights from other stories. He tells two other stories, very well known. Matthew uh, 13 verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field and though it's the smallest of all seeds yet when it grows it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches and he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour till it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. Now, this tells us something else about the kingdom of God. The message of the gospel has incredible power to multiply and to grow beyond what you would expect it to do. So, one of the dynamics of the kingdom of God over time is there is an unexpected level of growth given the simplicity of the message. Now, to the Jew, the mustard seed was the smallest seed they knew in their common experience. A friend of mine made me this little card, which has, you can probably just see here, a few mustard seeds with the text here. They heard me preaching on this parable many years ago, and they made this card for me, which I put in my office. And I look at these mustard seeds, and then I see from there, the biggest tree in a Jewish garden would grow. Four metres, perhaps, or even more. You can see it in the picture. Now, I'm no baker. I wonder how many of you bake your bread. It's not very common these days. Well, I went into our cupboard at home without consulting my wife, and I found some yeast. And I wondered, can I ask Jane if I can take this? And will she mind? Then I found it was out of date. So my conscience was relieved. But yeast. Tiny little, tiny little components in yeast, aren't they? So tiny. Jesus told this story to say the tiniest thing has the greatest power. The gospel appears incredibly small. But over time... It's going to grow incredibly big. And we see that happening through history. When the Christian church started in the time of St. Paul, there were just a few thousand Christians. It is calculated that by the time the Roman emperor, nearly 300 years later, became a Christian, Constantine, a social historian has calculated there were probably 5 to 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire. The the Christian gospel has this incredible power to multiply. Latin America in the 20th century saw, saw a spectacular explosion of Christianity through Pentecostalism. When I visited South Korea, I saw that in the 20th century, the whole country had been absolutely saturated by the gospel. This is the potential power at certain times and seasons of the Christian gospel. But then Jesus goes on and tells an even more significant story, less well-known but incredibly important for our purpose today because we're looking at the end times. How does the world end and how does all that connect with the future? We haven't worked that out yet. There's another story he tells in Matthew 13, which I'm going to read to you. Very important. This is what we're going to pause on. This is going to help us work out what the significance of our lived experience is, the complex experience that we have living in the world today. Matthew 13, verse 24 is coming up on the screen. The kingdom of heaven... It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed wheat, uh, weeds amongst the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When did the weeds, where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let, it, let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, Jesus goes on and in the next text it will just appear on the screen but I'm not going to read it. Just a few verses later in verse 37 when the disciples said, well, what on earth is this story about? He actually explains that the good seed represents the church, the individual believers and the weeds represent unbelievers and the enemy is actually a spiritual enemy who is going to, during the course of time, is going to create Negative communities and negative spiritual influences that are going to function alongside the church during human history. Darkness will grow while the kingdom grows. This is a fundamental biblical insight about our lived experience, by the way, folks. The kingdom keeps growing. There are more Christians in the world today than there have ever been in human history. But darkness continues to grow, and it is impossible for the church to dig up the darkness and get it out of the system. We have to live alongside darkness. Have you ever felt that's your lived experience? That is the reality of the Christian life. And the paradox of it is looking at the next slide that the weeds that Jesus was talking about is darnel. If you look on the top left, you'll see uh, uh, wheat on the left and darnel on the right. How different are they? Not much. And for centuries in Europe and in the Middle East, people who've sown wheat have wrestled with the fact that darnel can grow alongside it so easily. It's even called false wheat by some people. It sits there... And if an enemy comes and sows it, then it multiplies and it's a lived reality. So the farmer is faced with his field, this amazing wheat growing, but there is darnel growing alongside it. And he's he's not going to dig up the individual darnel because you will destroy the wheat in the process. He has to wait for the harvest when you finally get the grain and you get the division. Now I want to pause on this. And I want to think about this in a little bit more depth. Over time, over the course of human history, this parable has a very significant message to the church. We can expect the church to grow. But we cannot expect the church to triumph in this age over all the spiritual darkness that exists around us It is going to grow alongside the church and God has it all in hand. That is a profound, profound teaching. And it helps us to work out how we're going to live our lives. Because some Christians are just incredibly optimistic, aren't they? Ever come across a Christian who's always optimistic and God's going to answer everything and be everywhere and everything's going to be alright in every circumstance? Do you know anyone like that? They can be a little bit irritating. Okay. On the other hand, there are people, Christians, who prophesy darkness, doom and gloom and the decline of the church to the ultimate elite pure church which is going to get smaller and smaller over time it will include them but it may not include you. Jesus refutes both perspectives and he says, my kingdom will grow, but there is an enemy at work and he is working too. And so what does that help us to do in terms of orientating our Christian life? It means that sometimes the church will experience persecution and suffering. That darkness will impinge deeply on the church. Our friends in Ukraine, who we often speak of, they had this experience five years ago of a civil war in the East, and all the leaders had to leave the area, leave their homes, leave their incomes, leave their churches. Chaos came through a sudden burst of persecution, completely unexpected. These things can and they do happen. And there are spiritual battles and there are setbacks from time to time. Because this parable is a true explanation of reality. There is sometimes a kickback and there is sometimes a setback. And individual lives and families and churches and communities and nations are caught in a wider spiritual battle for the advance of the kingdom, the dynamics of which we don't fully understand although we see the victory at the end, it's very decisively clear in the story, isn't it? When the end comes, when the Son of Man, Jesus, returns, the victory will be overwhelmingly his. The victories of darkness are temporary, unsustainable, fleeting, not to be believed in, not to be followed, because the King is coming. But they are nevertheless an experienced reality for us. And even on an individual level or on a family level, we can experience incredible setbacks that we just can't explain within the context of our own human experience. We just cannot answer the question why this happened or that happened. But this wider perspective gives us a clue And so I draw from this parable, which I've thought of many times over the years. It's influenced my thinking very profoundly. I think I would draw three things from this parable. There are three things it helps me to have within my heart. One is long-term optimism, number one. I'm a long-term optimist for the kingdom of God. I really believe Jesus is coming I really believe it's going to make all the difference. I really believe it's worth living for him now because of what he's going to do in the future. I completely trust that he's sovereign over this world and I completely believe in the vindication of the church and the glorification of the saints and the resurrection of the body and eternal life, all the things I'm going to tell you about in the next coming weeks. Okay? Are you with me on that? So that makes me a long-term optimist. But in the short term, I'm a hard-nosed realist. And both of those things exist within my perception of what God is doing. If I see real setbacks now and real suffering for the church and real problems, do you know what? I expect them. I don't want them. They hurt me. They hurt other people. I don't like them. But because I believe in this parable and many other things that Jesus said, I think, well, actually, he's warning us There will be setbacks for the church from time to time, but they're all going to be temporary. But terribly hard to understand if you're trapped in the immediate. So it's the bigger picture that helps, and it's the bigger picture that we're talking about today. So I'm a long term optimist, I'm a hard nosed realist, and I'm learning to have faith for a lifetime and not just faith for a season. When people become Christians, they have faith in that season of life. What happens if that season is a comfortable and an easy season in life? They may subconsciously think, oh, it's going to be like that for the rest of my life. Oh dear. Probably not going to happen, is it? Faith for a lifetime rejoices in the miracles that have happened, faces the unanswered questions and the unfulfilled short-term expectations by saying, God, you're sovereign over time. And time's the bit I don't get because I want to see things now. I live in this moment, but you live in eternity. And that's the hard bit. So can I repeat those three things again? I offer these to you as some outcomes of this incredibly powerful story long term optimism hard nosed realism and faith for a lifetime aren't you glad that Jesus warned us about things told us that things are going to be a little bit complicated but ultimately that it's all going to work out really well and there's nothing to be afraid of he really does keep his church and his people as we trust him and he's done that for the church in many, many incredibly hard situations which it's faced in different eras and different parts of the world. Now while I was thinking about this talk I thought let's just think of another perspective on this and I went to Corinth. Uh, thinking, okay, that's Jesus and his teaching, that's all very well, but what about the early church? And Corinth was an incredibly complicated church with a lot of problems. And Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and I just did a little thought experiment. I went through the first letter to the Corinthians and I looked for the word, the kingdom of God. And the interesting thing I discovered is that it appears in four four different times and they beautifully capture the balance of what Jesus was teaching. This I only discovered a few days ago. I'm not going to read out all these texts here on the screen. But Paul speaks about the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but power. He's referring to the gospel with signs following. And he talks about People having transformed lifestyles when they enter the kingdom of God. Now, both those top ones are kind of the things about today, aren't they? The, kingdom of the, the gospel of the kingdom brings salvation and lifestyles are transformed. Here's the lifestyle one, just to give you the flavour of Paul's um, teaching. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the top two references, 1 Corinthians 2, and 4, and then 1 Corinthians 6. They speak of present experience, salvation and change of lifestyle. And that is, in one sense, that is the kingdom, isn't it? People are saved. It's the most dynamic addition. The way to uh, enhance the kingdom is for salvation to come. And lives are changed. And Paul speaks about the kingdom of God in that imminent, immediate, now sense. But, going further into the book, he then says things about the kingdom yet to come. And this is the paradox we're going to end up with in just a moment. The kingdom yet to come. The kingdom started, but there's more. There's more of the kingdom we can't experience now. And Paul is incredibly emphatic about this. If we want to receive the whole of God's kingdom and his power, we can't do it in our human life. uh, Flesh and blood isn't going to inherit it. This human body in its present form won't be around at that time. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50, I declare to you brothers and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in the long term, nor does the perishable inherit the the imperishable, and he's speaking of the fact that when the kingdom really comes, we're going to be resurrected. That's the moment, but we talk about the resurrection in two Sundays time. The resurrection of the body. The Bible teaches clearly Jesus comes again, and at that time, Christians will experience a resurrection of the body into a body that is cl- closely resembles what you are now, Though in some cases a younger version, maybe. Yes. Not looking at anyone at this particular point. It's always risky to look at people at this point. But a body that is immune to sickness, decay, decline, and pain. How does that feel? You can't experience the fullness of the kingdom until your body is ready to experience the fullness of God's redemption in eternity. It's an incredible truth that Paul says. We'll come back to that in two weeks' time. And then he says in the same chapter that the kingdom isn't really going to come in power, verse 24, the end will come, When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Remember the enemy in the parable who planted the seeds? His days are numbered. I say it respectfully. Satanic power moves in this earth. But those Days are numbered by the Sovereign God. And that number will be up at the moment Christ returns. So that's just a quick glimpse into Corinthians. And we see that we've got these two things going on at once. We've got the kingdom today. Somebody could be saved on Alpha Terry within a few weeks, couldn't they? Or even in the big questions. (laughs) Which Sharon so wonderfully invited us all to. And that's an advance of the kingdom. Someone can experience an incredible healing in their body. Someone can experience an incredible miracle in their finances. Someone consider an incre- can experience an incredible reconciliation in their family. Someone can, can, can experience the lifting of long-term mental health issues that have dogged us for years and suddenly it lifts. And we can say in every one of those circumstances and many others, the kingdom has come. The kingdom's here. Someone gets baptised. Another mark for the kingdom. People's lives change. Because they believe in Jesus. The kingdom is advancing. All these things are true. But they're balanced in Scripture with the fact that it's the kingdom now and not yet. The kingdom now and yet to be. And the Christian has to hold in his or her mind now tremendously strongly. God is working now. But They also have to hold strongly the fact that God's going to work in the future and what you don't yet see happen now will be resolved and will happen in the future. We have to have faith for a lifetime, long-term optimism and hard-nosed realism for today. Here's a picture to illustrate where I think this all lands us. Sorry for the fancy words at the top. You know, theologians love really long words that no one can pronounce inaugurated eschatology. Forget that for the moment. Just look at the picture. Okay? Came off the internet and I couldn't scrub out the top words. Now, if you, th- this is my summary of what this all tells us. If you look at the bottom line, it's called the present age. That means life as it goes on in human history. Here we are. We're living our life. Our ancestors lived a life and then before them and before them, before them centuries and that's human life going on. And then came the first coming. Jesus came to earth. And what did he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark one, fourteen and fifteen. His very first statement was The Kingdom's here, folks. Something's changing irreversibly changing in human history. Uh, but look, we're on the bottom line. You're walking along the bottom line somewhere, but actually you're in the box, aren't you? If you realise that, because you're after the first coming, but you're before the second coming. You're in the, in the box. And when the first came, coming comes, we've got the age to come, or the age of the kingdom, has already started functioning in human history. It's already happening. And the parables tell us it's growing and it's growing. The mustard tree is getting bigger. The loaf in the oven is getting bigger. The seeds in the field are growing even though the weeds are there alongside it trying to choke it. But we are in the already but not yet kingdom of God. You're in that middle box section. One day you wake up and you think, oh, I'm really in the present age. I can't feel the presence of God. Everything's gone wrong. Where is he? The next day you wake up and think, oh, God's absolutely fantastic. He's going to answer all my problems. I can't imagine having any problems for the rest of my life. You're getting muddled up, you folks, because it's not all about the first and it's not all about the second. It's all mixed up together and we get different portions of it in our brains at different times, don't we? We're fighting a battle. It's not an easy one. But we've really got to hold on to the truth. The kingdom is here and what started is going to finish. Already but not yet. You can't lose sight of this doctrine of the kingdom without getting a very odd version or diminished version of Christianity. So what's a useful way of concluding this opening talk? Three thoughts for you, three applications, three reflections. I really want you to remember that little box and that little diagram. You can email to Sharon and she'll send it to you from the office if you want the kingdom is both now and in the future. I've given another reference where Jesus explains that, which we haven't got time to go into, Luke 17, verses 20 to 25, when the Pharisees were really confused and asked him a question about the kingdom. So, in order to get that kingdom perspective both now and in the future, we need to be better informed about what the Bible says about the future. Now, one of the things I've noticed about Christians is. Many Christians are profoundly confused about what the Bible says about the future. We've got a few glimpses here and there. We do believe in heaven and eternal life and salvation. But the second coming, gosh, how does that work? What about resurrection? What happens to people who die before they get to resurrection? We'll come to that. And what about the book of Revelation? So I've been talking to people this week about the book of Revelation saying I'm going to do a seminar this evening called How to Read the Book of Revelation. And Some people said to me, well, I don't bother reading the book of Revelation. And other people are deeply enthused by it. And a lot of people spend a lot of time on the internet hearing some some latest preacher talking an interesting theory about who is the harlot and who is Babylon and this, that and the other. Okay, well, we'll sort all that out this evening the best we can. Okay, But The foundations are really important and the foundation is what I've shared with you today. That this kingdom started with Jesus and is growing and will be culminated when he returns in a glorious and wonderful and overwhelming way that is so magnificent. One can hardly even speak of it. It is incredible what He's going to do. But we need a perspective. You know what it's like in life if you don't have a perspective on difficult events and complex life experiences It's terribly hard to handle them. And Jesus never promised it was going to be entirely easy, as I illustrated with those parables. But these two things I find really helpful in conclusion. I, for many years, have used the Lord's Prayer in my devotion for the very simple reason that Jesus said, use it. You know, when you pray, say And one of the things I find incredibly striking about the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, um, is that the first prayer isn't about us at all. The first prayer is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. It goes on to say, give us this day our daily bread, which is a great prayer and he will answer it and he loves to meet our daily needs. But the priority of prayer is to say, Lord, we want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, as it is in heaven means 100%. It's actually a prayer for the second coming. Because th- this, that prayer cannot be fulfilled until Jesus has actually come back and actually oversees the Uh, establishment of the kingdom. And it's a prayer for everything in between. Lord, in my life, let there be an alignment to the kingdom in my life and what I do in my time, in my place, in our church, in our family, in our workplace, in our society. So, I love to pray and often I can't really get past this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's the number one Christian prayer and it's about the kingdom and perhaps the number one bit of general advice Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount concerning our lifestyle is significant, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these material things will be added to you as well The most important question, perhaps, for our lives is what are the kingdom priorities for me now? And you know what? It varies. Sometimes it's about working hard, earning a living, paying the mortgage, bringing up children. Sometimes it's about serving in the background of the church. Sometimes it's about advancing in your career. Sometimes it's about praying for your unsaved friends. And other times it's about other things. And things vary. But the Holy Spirit's always able to help us work out what His priorities are for our life now. His kingdom and His righteousness. And the more people seek first His kingdom, the faster it will advance And the closer will be the return of Christ. Let's stand. Let's have a worship band.